Thank you for listening to the Redeemer podcast. Redeemer exists to make the gospel of Jesus known in our city, region, and world. Subscribe to the Redeemer podcast to not only access our weekly sermons, but also select special talks and lectures by myself and our guest speakers. If you want to know more about Redeemer and how you can be a part of what God is doing through our church, go to www.redeemerbible.ca. Thank you, and we hope that you're blessed by what you're about to hear. After some technical difficulties yesterday with the audio in our church service, I'm re-recording the sermon here so that it can be part of the podcast. So that's what you're hearing now. So we're beginning a new series here at the tail end of the summer in the book of Nahum. And this is the logical follow-up to the book of Jonah because it tells us what happens to Nineveh and to the Assyrian Empire after, about 100, 150 years or so, after Jonah's uh, preaching and their seeming repentance. So I'm going to read Nahum, verses 1 to 8 in chapter 1. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. And the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and he will pursue his enemies into darkness. It's the word of the Lord. So before we jump into this book, it's always important to get context because this is a book that is loaded with a lot of talk about God's anger and frustration and his wrath poured out on Nineveh and on the world. And in our modern context, that sort of a God is very difficult to stomach. Very hard for modern Canadians to really uh, hear about an angry, jealous, and vengeful and wrathful God and not cringe just a little. So let's first get the context in here to understand what, uh, what sort of a world this word was being spoken into when Nahum brought it to Judah. So... We know Jonah's ministry probably was sometime between 780 and 740 BC. And about 20 or so at most, uh, sorry, at least 20 years after Jonah's uh, messages to Nineveh and after their seeming repentance, we know that that repentance either didn't take a whole lot or didn't last. Because just 20 years later, the Assyrians, uh, led by Nineveh, uh, will attack and besiege Israel, Samaria, their capital. And in 722, under the leadership of a guy named Sargon II, the Assyrians successfully destroy and conquer Samaria and the northern kingdom of Israel and carry people off into exile. And from 722 onward for the next 91 years, Assyria is experiencing what can only be called its golden age. There's four successive kings, Sargon II, Sennacherib, Esarhaddon, and Ashurbanipal. 
And these four guys rule uh, in a way that um, under, under an Assyria that is not only its largest as far as geography, it has taken over the most territory, which is really culminated by the conquest of Thebes and of Egypt in 663 BC. Uh, but it's also the time of a great splendor in the Assyrian Empire. Uh, Nineveh becomes the capital only at this point under Sennacherib. And not only has it become the capital, but there's we know there's about 30 miles of aqueducts in the city. We know that there was a, a, a library that was unparalleled for the time, and uh, the stores of the tablets that were amassed in Nineveh at this time were uh, were and continue to be just a treasure trove of of information for archaeologists and historians trying to understand that time. So Assyria is big, it is powerful, it is brutal, as all of their reliefs and all of their carvings and, uh, and the evidence of their own records show. They were brutal to their enemies. But the one blemish on the military history of Assyria at this time is that they cannot manage to defeat, militarily anyway, Judah. We know that in 701, Sennacherib invades and encircles Jerusalem. But we also know, not only from the Bible, but from historical texts as well, other historical texts, that Jerusalem, that something happens, that we know that for whatever reason, we don't get all the details in the historical record. The Assyrians probably don't want to talk about their failures, but we know that they have to leave Jerusalem at best with a stalemate. And so we know in scripture through Second Kings and from the book of Isaiah, what happens, which is Hezekiah calls on God and God helps uh, Israel, uh, Judah, to repel the uh, Assyrian army. But Although Judah is free militarily and politically in that way, they're far from free in reality. Because not only are they forced throughout this, this time period for this hundred years or so to be paying tribute, uh, but various kings in, uh, in Judah actually are pro-Assyrian and adopt a lot of the Assyrian culture and religious practices as well. Specifically, a guy named Manasseh. He is the, the nadir. He's the low point of Judean kings. And in fact, his, his, his tenure, his reign is so corrupt, so idolatrous that God says, you know what? Things are now so bad that there's no way to, to hold off the inevitable destruction and exile of Jerusalem and of Judah. It's going to happen, but it won't happen under Assyria. Assyria will be destroyed first, and then the Babylonians will come, and they're the ones who will destroy Assyria. And then uh, 20 or 30 years or so afterwards, after that destruction, Babylon will take Judah away. But for the time being, when Nahum shows up on the, on, on the scene, he's writing at some point, certainly before the fall of Assyria, probably anywhere at the latest at 626 B.C., and his voice comes into a Jerusalem or into a Judah that is heavily under the thumb of Assyria. In fact, many people in Judah are pro-Assyria. So culturally, they're effectively Assyrians. And so his message comes, and it's not only unpopular, but it's actually laughable. When Nahum comes suggesting that Assyria is going to be destroyed by God, it would have seemed just so bizarre. It's almost as for most of us, we've only lived in a time when America, the United States, is the dominant power in the world. Yes, there's other powers, but America culturally, financially, militarily dominates the world. And to imagine a time when that will not only be, not be the case, but when there will be a violent and radical overturning of that 
uh, superiority or that presence, that dominance of American culture and military might almost seems impossible to us. And the same thing would have been the case in Israel and in Judah when Nahum and God, and not just him, when Jeremiah starts speaking. And so as Josiah becomes the king of Judah and starts to realize that Assyria is on its decline as Babylon starts to rise, Josiah takes advantage of that and starts to implement religious reform and saying, we're going to take back our Jewishness. We're going to reinstate our Jewish worship here. And he has the backing of other prophets as well who are speaking. And yet he's still, uh, there's still great uh, resistance um, to to the efforts as we know from the book of Jeremiah, etc. But what Nahum does is he comes with his short prophecy and he says to Israel or to Judah, you can go ahead with these reforms. Start thinking about what life is going to be like without Assyrian control because it's coming and it's inevitable. God will destroy Assyria. He's going to return to them the atrocities that they have done to the world. And so Nahum opens his book with the passage that I read, verses 1 to 8, with a hymn. It's a, it's a hymn that effectively describes God. And the reason he starts this way is because it would have been so impossible in the mind of the average Jew at the time, to think that Assyria could be defeated, that what God needs to do first, and he does it through Nahum, Nahum is to say, if you're going to believe that, that Assyria will fall, then you're going to have to have a much larger vision of who I am. You're going to have to know who I am because nothing can prevent me from bringing judgment on anyone, let alone Assyria. And so this opening hymn, these first eight verses, tell us a lot about God's character and who he is. Specifically, it tells us that there is hope for God's people and for all the people who are suffering in the world because God is just, he is coming, and he is a refuge. So those three things are what we're going to look at. He is just, coming, and a refuge. So first, he is just. So this Old Testament God of ours seems to be... uh, an embarrassment to many Christians, always has been, and especially now we're seeing it. Many people don't know what to do with the Old Testament, and even prominent Christian speakers and and pastors, like a man named Andy Stanley, who I normally wouldn't call out names, but Andy Stanley is a prominent pastor, big church, big influence, and when he has in the last couple of years said that what we need to do as Christians is unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament, When they do that, what he is saying is, you know, the Old Testament's embarrassing. It's difficult. It's a stumbling block to faith. And so we need to unhitch ourselves, stop focusing on the Old Testament, and focus instead on what I presume Stanley thinks is uh, the more palatable and more friendly and more appealing and easier to swallow version of God in the New Testament. So, and this is not uncommon, unfortunately, that we see that God is jealous, avenging, and wrathful, and we reject it, we cringe, and the reason we do that is we don't want to think of God as having these sorts of emotions and feelings that humans have. Because when we hear jealousy, vengeance, and wrath, we're biased when we hear those words because we don't think about God doing them, we think about humans, and our experience of human jealousy and human wrath is, has been negative, and understandably so. And so when we hear that God is supposed to be perfect and loving, but he is jealous and wrathful, we under, I understand that we balk at it. But we need to understand that when the Bible speaks about God being jealous and wrathful, he's not, the, the Bible's not speaking about God being like us and doing and experiencing and expressing those things as we do. So first we'll look at jealousy very quick and then at wrath. 
So there is bad jealousy. You know, psychologists today, we they know that the root of jealousy is in is in our low self-esteem, our self-doubt, our anxiety, uh, our fears of abandonment, those sorts of things. And so what happens is once we feel that something is threatened, we automatically become jealous for it. Now, the challenge for us is that when we feel we're losing something and we get jealous for it, it could be for our reputation, it could be for a friend or a family member, whatever it is, that jealousy is often takes a negative form because what we do is we're trying to protect something that isn't ours. And so it goes, it goes wrong, right? When a, when a man starts telling his, his, his wife that, he, she, that he, she cannot see certain people because he's worried that she's going to find another man or cheat on him or whatever, this is that negative jealousy coming out because what he is trying to do is he's trying to preserve something and to defend something that he has no right to. He can't, he can't demand that of, of her. And we know human jealousy is always falling apart. The Bible talks about it. In Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the first letter, uh, verse 3 of chapter 3, he says this, For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Because Paul knows that human jealousy, if left unchecked especially, what it does is it becomes angry and it expresses itself in violence and deceit and if you look at scripture you see that everywhere you see for instance in king saul that when he feels jealous of the attention that david is getting as a young general in his army who is winning victories uh, his jealousy is spurred by the fact that he thinks he deserves the praise and glory and so as a result be that jealousy left unchecked begins to fester and grow and it manifests in not just anger but in Saul throwing spears at David, trying to kill him and hunt him down. And this is the natural response, natural progress of human jealousy. It tries to defend something it has no business defending. And jealousy is always trying to defend and preserve something. So what is the good version? So if that's the negative spot, is God guilty of that? Does God respond rashly? Is he, is he, is he like a 12-year-old boy or you know a high school boyfriend or girlfriend who just is irrational? and arbitrary in his jealousy. Um, well, no. So let's turn to Paul again. When he speaks about good or divine jealousy, he actually uses that term in 2 Corinthians 11. And he says to the Corinthians, I feel a divine jealousy for you, so a godly jealousy. Since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So you see, what Paul is doing, Paul planted that church in Corinth. And if it was me, you know, if Redeemer starts to slide into liberalism, it starts to slide into an ungodly place, I would feel jealous. But my sinfulness in me, part of me would say, I'm not just jealous because they are struggling and they're not honoring God, but my sin would say, I'm also jealous because I built this church. You know, I'm, I'm serving this church. I'm speaking at this church. I'm teaching them. How could they possibly then become so so wrong theologically after they've heard me speak? You see, I start to then get jealous for my reputation and how it reflects on me that this church is moving to the left. And Paul doesn't do that, though. See, Paul isn't trying to preserve his own reputation when he's crying out to the Corinthians. Notice what he says. He is upset. He's jealous for them because of what they are losing. 
He's jealous for them because he says, you have a relationship with God. I met, I married you to him. And now I'm afraid that you're running away from that and you're going to hurt. You're going to suffer. You're going to dishonor God. And so what you find is that jealousy in a positive sense is when it's jealous for the other and not for the self. And you've all felt this, right? We've all felt this in our lives when we have seen a friend or a loved one who is led away by, let's say, uh, an addiction or a mental or physical disorder or by some ideas that are drawing them away from a good path and towards their own destruction and harm. And you see that, right? I know it's not just if you see a family member go down the path of drug addiction, but I've seen people whose spouses and children get muscular diseases that that leaves them then immobile and impaired and, and crippled. And they feel jealous for it. And the reason they feel jealous is they're not just... Um, upset for what they are personally losing in that sibling or that friend or that that spouse, but they're jealous for them. They feel uh, an anger towards the thing that is taking and robbing that person of something. And so this is what Paul is speaking. This is good jealousy. The theologian J.I. Packer says, God's jealousy is not a compound of frustration, envy, and spite as human jealousy so often is but appears instead as a literally praiseworthy zeal to preserve something supremely precious. And so God's jealousy is not something that is rooted in frustration and a frustrated reaction, but it is a love-rooted reaction that, that is aimed at preserving the good in, the, in those and for those that he loves. And so God sees this preciousness that Israel is losing in being hammered by their neighbors. He sees it in us as his church, as his people, when things are drawing us away and he is jealous for our sake and for his own honor, but also because it's for us, right? He's jealous for the good of us that is being taken away. And the outworking of jealousy is wrath. You see, uh, Luther once said that um, God's wrath is his love burning hot. And it's natural that when you and I see a loved one who's being led astray by something, that we have a jealousy for them, we hurt for them, we want to see them do well, but we also have an anger that rises up against the thing that is harming them and drawing them away. Now, of course, our wrath is misdirected often, but we don't see that with God. In fact, wrath is God's act of opposition to the exp- and it's uh, to sin and the expression of his love. And How do we know that here in Nahum? We see it in verse 2 of chapter 1. When it says in your English Bibles, all of our English Bibles, all of them as far as I know, says the Lord is avenging and wrathful. And that's good. That's that's true. But what we don't see is in the Hebrew, it actually says that the Lord is avenging and Baal Hamah. And Baal Hamah means the Lord. Baal is like the, the Canaanite god, Baal, which actually means Lord. And then Hamah means wrath. So what it actually says is that Lord is the Lord is avenging and the Lord of wrath. And that's fat. I know, I know why they put wrathful because he is He does have wrath, God. But in, in leaving out the fact that he is Lord of wrath, what we may miss is God is not subject to knee jerk reactions and hasty decisions out of his anger and jealousy like we are. Instead, he is master of his wrath. The wrath is always calculated. In fact, another commentator named Palmer Robertson perfectly captures it simply when he says, he, meaning God, displays a calculated control in his dispensing of vengeance. 
He never gives way to passions. He never exceeds propriety. He never compromises his ultimate goals because of a reactionary response to current provocations. See, and when God does this, when God comes to us and says that vengeance is his, that he is the avenger for us, he's actually doing a great service to us. It's a great blessing because, again, one more commentator I'm going to mention, James Bruckner, says this, that if we rely on ourselves for vengeance, God knows that our imperfection will cause the fire of our wrath to consume us as well. And so you see, God comes and says he will be the avenger because he knows that we cannot exercise wrath and we cannot be jealous well because of our sin. And so God says he is coming. And this is the first point for us. The key is that God says to Israel through Nahum, I know you've been waiting. I know you've been under the thumb of Assyria, but I am just, I'm coming. I'm coming at the right time and I will come to do exactly what needs to be done. Because there would have been a lot of questions in Israel, right? Why did why did Israel uh, why did God even allow Nineveh to be saved and spared under Jonah's teaching just to have them come and crush Israel anyway? What's the point? There would have been all these questions. Why ninety years? Why all this time? And God says, "What you first and foremost need to know is I am just. I am not you." I come and I exercise my jealousy and my wrath and my justice perfectly. And that is something the people of faith will hear. And if you're not a Christian, you're not a person of faith, you're going to say, can I really trust him? Shouldn't I be the exerciser of justice? And you see, of course, how that is gone humanly. So he first comes and says he is just. But then the next thing he does in this passage is he comes and says, I am coming. Meaning he is coming and there's no stopping him. Now, uh, this past week, I was reminded of and I read a big chunk of the autobiography of Frederick Douglass, a former slave statesman and became uh, an orator. And first of all, his biography is beautifully written. Uh, Douglass was just an excellent writer and communicator. But there's this heart-wrenching portion where he's speaking about his grandmother, his grandmother who is dying, and he's, he's struggling with that. And it's a bit of a longer passage, but let me read it to you and you're going to see how this makes sense. The children, the unconscious children who once sang and danced in her presence, his grandmother's, are gone. She gropes her way in the darkness of of age for a drink of water. Instead of voices of her children, she hears by day the moans of the dove and by night the screams of the hideous owl. All is gloom. The grave is at the door. And now, when weighed down by the pains and aches of old age, when the head inclines to the feet and when the beginning and ending of human existence meet, and helpless infancy and painful old age combined together. At this time, this most needful time, the time for the exercise of that tenderness and affection which children only can exercise towards a declining parent. My poor old grandmother, the devoted mother of twelve children, is left all alone in yonder little hut before the dim embers. She stands, she sits, she staggers, she falls, she groans, she dies. And there will be none of her children or grandchildren present to wipe the wrink, wipe from, wipe from her wrinkled brow the cold sweat of death, or to place beneath the sod her fallen remains. Will not a righteous God visit for these things? And that last line, as he laments, he is expressing there what every single human, every human, feels. They look around the world. Douglas looked and saw the injustice of his wonderful grandmother who had given her life for others, who had poured herself out 
like water for others, was now in the process of dying alone. And the sadness and the misery and the injustice of that struck Douglas. And the only thing he could say is the same thing we all say and wonder, even if you're an atheist, you still have thought this. Will not a righteous God visit for these things? Isn't there a judge? Isn't there an advocate for these things? You see, because as humans, we don't just want justice for the visible issues we see in the world. We don't just want justice in our laws and, and how the world is governed, though that's important and necessary. We also want desperately to know that there is an advocate for the unseen injustices. We want to know that there's an advocate for that child who's bullied at school but never expresses it because he's embarrassed. We want to know that there is justice, an advocate for the abused spouse who suffers in silence and makes, uh, makes excuses for their abusive partner. We want to know that there is an advocate for the, the person who has suffered chronic pain for most of their lives. We want to know there's an advocate for the person who, and some of us are in this position where our lives just aren't what we wanted them to be. And even though we want to be better people, we want to be better husbands and wives and dads and children and employees, we want to be better, but we can't seem to do it. We want to know there's an advocate who knows that even though we've made shipwreck of our lives, we want to do better. We want to know there's an, even an advocate for those unborn children being aborted at an incredibly horrific rate in our, in our world. Is there an advocate? Will not a righteous God visit for these things? But here we have to at least address a skeptic's question. Because this has long been the case. People have thought this way for a long time. But recently, especially, skeptics arise and say, Yeah, but Carl, you know, just because you feel there is this doesn't mean there is justice. In fact, religion and these ideas of a cosmic and eternal just just judge that is going to show up, you know, and make things right and make the, the guilty pay, that's just wishful thinking. It's actually not true. You know, you just create it as an opiate to make you feel better about a life that is actually and deep down you know is meaningless. And I understand that that critique and I receive it as it's meant. But I would push back and say, isn't it possible that the opposite is actually true as well? There's a, um, a, a, a Polish poet named uh, Szesław Milos, and he said a lot of wonderful things, but something really incredible. He says this, Now we are witnessing a transformation. A true opium of the people is a belief in nothingness after death. The huge solace of thinking that our betrayals, greed, cowardice, murders are not going to be judged. So you see what Milos is saying, and this is an, a fair critique, is... Yes, Karl Marx has said uh, religion is the opiate of the masses. It's that drug that we create and take so that we can be numb to the realities of this horrific world and keep us in line. I get that. But what Milos is saying is, isn't it possible that we have actually turned uh, and made a new opiate? And that opiate now that we, that we take and enjoy is the opiate that says there's no judge. Because then we don't have to feel guilty for the things we know we feel guilty about. We know we haven't been the right people we ought to be. And to numb that down, to push that down and to suppress that feeling of guilt, we create a worldview and an eternity of nothingness and oblivion so that we can avoid addressing those feelings of guilt. Isn't that possible? Well, surely it is. And so when Nahum comes and he speaks, however, about a real justice, a justice that is coming, he touches on a chord that every human heart knows how to play. And so Assyria, and he does, and because he knows we long for this, 
But we see how impossible justice is, especially in, in Judah's context, because Assyria seems immovable. What's going to possibly th un throw the shackles of Assyria off of Judah? So what Nahum does and what God does through him is from verses 3 to 6, he says, you know, I am going to show you I am master over nature. And so you see this being said. You see him saying his way, God's way is in the whirlwind and the storm. The clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up the rivers. The notoriously um, uh, lush regions of Bashan and Carmel and Lebanon, they will wither. Mountains will quake. Hills will melt. Earth heaves. Rocks are broken into pieces by God. And what what is what? What Nahum is doing here is he's saying God is master and sovereign over all things. Nothing can resist him coming. And then he ends with those classic lines that Malachi will repeat that says, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? And of course, it's rhetorical. No one. That's the point. And so God's in the second point, what he says is, I'm coming. You want justice, you have justice. I'm on my way and nothing will prevent justice from coming at the time that God says. It may be slow or fast for our liking, but God says he is just, he is perfect, and nothing will prevent justice. Nothing will prevent Frederick Douglass's grandmother from having justice done in some way, in God's way, the perfect way. Will not a righteous judge visit us for this? Yes, he will. That's the point that Nahum is making all through the book, but certainly right here. And this is a comfort. See, it's hard because the destruction of Assyria and the death of thousands of people is meant to be a comfort for those in, Israel, in Judah. And when we, when we say, how could that be a comfort? Uh, we, we kind of reveal our modern Western biases and, and really silliness. We have not suffered. And so we cannot conceive of how any sort of violence done to some people can be a comfort or a good for others. And Elizabeth Ochtemeyer, another uh, scholar, uh, captures this well. And, and here's what she says. For if God does not destroy the evil the human beings have brought into God's good creation, the world can never return to the wholeness he intended for it in the beginning. To divest God of his function as destroyer of wrong is to acquiesce to the present corrupt state of the world, to accept the sinful status quo and simply to put up with whatever is done by selfish and prideful and corrupted men and women. The God of vengeance is a threatening picture only to those who want to be their own gods and rule the earth in their own ways. But to those who trust God, it is a comfort and affirmation that he is truly sovereign. You see, atheism says there is no justice that Frederick Douglass's grandmother will have no justice. There's no justice for anyone. Nothing. Nothing but what you can try to mete out here on earth. There's no advocate for the invisible and unseen injustices. There's no advocate. That's what atheism says. Eastern religions will say, no, no, there, there can be justice, but you've got to create it because you'll be reincarnated over and over. And until you get it right, there's no hope for you. And so you have to produce it yourself. And of course, that's a miserable place to be because human history has shown we can't really do that. It's Christianity alone that says that the world is corrupt, that there is sin, but there is justice, that there is a God who is active and will bring justice. He, he exercises justice here and now, but he will bring perfect, complete justice at some point as well. And this, of course, leads us now to the final point that God is a refuge. 
because we have at this point, not just through the here Nahum, but through the book of Jonah and the Bible in general, it almost seems like humanity and God have both painted themselves into a corner. So humans have this paradox. We say we're desperate for justice. We want justice. We try to everything to make it happen in this world. We do, we re, we do try. We want and demand justice. The downside for us, of course, is that we have justice. And the moment we know we have a king who is just, we then realize we're on the wrong side of justice. So what we actually desperately crave, we cannot endure, which is justice. So we're in trouble. If we are guilty and justice will condemn us, then the very thing we want is the very thing that will cause our destruction. So how are we going to resolve that? And then humanity is not only has humanity done that, but God seems to have seems to have painted himself in the corner because he says all through the Old Testament and Nahum references it again, that he is all at once merciful and he will by no means clear the guilty. So you see, here we have a paradox. God will forgive, but he will never forgive the guilty. So what is going to happen here? And Nahum just adds this tension because he paints a portrait of God as being vengeful and angry with at sin in the world. But then he also says in verse 7 that the Lord is good and a refuge. So what's happening here? Well, I think the answer comes to us in a lot of places, but very vividly in Exodus. In that famous Exodus scene where God is, is freeing his people from the clutches of slavery in Egypt, there is 10 plagues. Everybody has heard of these. Now, what's interesting is the first nine plagues all occur with a mediator. God will do something. He'll bring some sort of judgment to Egypt through flies or, or water being turned to blood, etc. And he will do it through a mediator. So before it happens, what will occur is the mediator, Aaron or Moses, will lift up their staff and do some sort of an act. And God in responding, so there'll be a faithful act by a mediator. And then God will, through the mediator, bring judgment on Egypt. That's how it works. But in the last plague, there is no mediator. Aaron or Moses are not asked to do anything to raise their hands to, to begin the, the, the plague. Instead, what God says is he himself will come. He will come and send his destroyer before him. And the firstborn of all the people in the land of Egypt will die. And there is no mediator. God is coming. And what we're seeing clearly is this. When God comes none can stand this is what nahum is saying who can who can abide who can stand who can endure his coming and the answer is no one and israel in egypt is finding this in that last plague god is coming and there is no refuge from him so what god does is something different he all through the first nine plagues he knew who was egypt and who was israel he would uh, afflict the egyptian people or the uh, the egyptian livestock but we're told that he didn't allow the affliction to come to the israelite livestock he seemed to know who were his and who were not um, his but here everyone is subject everyone including israel is subject to death when god comes but god says here do this ritual uh, kill the lamb, and you know the story, and then paint the, the, the lintels, the doorposts uh, of your door with the blood. And God says something interesting. He says, this will be a sign to you. So what he is saying is, Israel, this is a sign to you that when I come, I will, I will see and I'll know who are my people. But it'll be a sign for you because Israel at this point needs to, uh, to stand up and say, I identify with this God. I trust him. I trust that by the death of this lamb, I will be saved. And so 
God does this for them. He, and in that, he shows justice, right? That there's that there will be salvation. You can be forgiven, but there needs something needs to die, and and salvation is always going to be costly. Israel, and they learn this. But here's what else they learn: they learn that it's temporary, because although this will allow Israel to be saved from that plague, they're going to have issues through the wilderness in the next 40 years where they're dying because they create a, a golden calf, etc. So there's the, the lamb cannot save forever. And with Israel now with Nahum, you're seeing the exact same thing. God will save them from Assyria it, and 612 BC will come when Babylon destroys Assyria. But 586 will come too, just 20 years later. And that is when Babylon will destroy Israel or Judah. So what is the hope for Israel? It's the hope that there is going to be a better lamb. And the Lord of wrath shows it. Palmer, uh, Palmer uh, Robertson, uh, later on in the rest of that quote, I didn't read all of it. He says this, that God's mastery of his wrath is seen most clearly in the endurance by the father and son in the hour of Christ's crucifixion. And so what we see Nahum doing is saying, there is justice. You're on the wrong side of justice, but God will make a way for you like he always has. He is a refuge. There will be no refuge from the king, only in the king. That there is going to be that. And we see, of course, we live on this side of the resurrection. So we know now that God's wrath and his justice, his desire for mercy and for justice meet at the cross. And there sin is punished to its fullness, but mercy is given to its fullness. Because in, in the garden of Gethsemane, when Christ says, let this cup pass for me, he's talking about the cup of wrath. All through the Old Testament, wrath is poured out from a cup, the, the book of Revelation as well. And so what God is saying is that wrath, that cup of wrath, Christ drinks so that it isn't poured out on you. If you trust in him, if you believe, like Nahum says, if you find refuge in him, he knows you are his because you've identified with him. And so God is just. He is coming. And we all stand guilty before him. And the only hope for us to escape that wrath that's coming is to do what that wonderful old hymn says, which is, he is a rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. That Christ is our salvation. He is our refuge from the wrath of God. And so if you're a Christian, rejoice in the rock of your salvation. And you, your job now is to call others to seek refuge in him. But if you're a skeptic, just look at your life, look at the world, and consider that you have thought the same thing Frederick Douglass has. Will not a righteous God visit for these things? He will. He is coming. And you know he is. There is no hope outside of Christ. Seek refuge in him while you can. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that you are just. Thank you that we don't need to uh, just hope for justice to come for all the millions and millions, even billions of people who suffer injustice, but that it will come and it will come perfectly. Lord, I thank you that you made a way for us to avoid, uh, not to avoid, because uh, justice isn't avoided. It is paid for in full in Christ, but that you have found a way for us to escape the justice we deserve so that we get the reward Christ deserved because he took the justice we deserve. Thank you for that, Lord. I pray that all of us uh, hearing and listening to these words would do exactly what we've been saying, to seek you, find refuge in you. Father, we love you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.